He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have a dynamite show for you today. Uh, we have Steve Cates. Uh, we have Congressman Peter King, Governor Patterson, uh, the ambassador uh, to uh, Greece, because it's Greek Independence Weekend, George Tunis, as well as Archbishop of Peter Fotos, Deputy Majority Leader of uh, New York State, Michael Janaris, uh, Zach Williams from Albany, Dick Morris on what the heck is going on, uh, and we're going to start off with Michael Stoller. And let me make a note, we had a full 40-minute interview with Governor Andrew Cuomo on the crisis in America, and you can get the entire interview on our website or our mailing, and we're just giving you a five-minute tidbit today. We have cut down a few of the interviews, and you will be able to get the full interviews on our website. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have one of the most active developers in New York City, developing through the boroughs, also in New Jersey, Long Island, Lester Petraca, who is the founder CEO of Triangle Equities. Thanks for being here, Lester. Well, Michael, thank you. It's always wonderful to see you. So let's talk about the different boroughs that you're working in. You know, certain times on my show, we, we have limited discussion on Staten Island, but you have Staten Island, you have Brooklyn. Let's talk about what you're doing in Staten Island and some of the other developments that Triangle is involved with. Well, in Staten Island, right at the base of the uh, Staten Island Ferry, we have a um, mixed-use building going up, uh, which is about 65,000 square feet of commercial retail space, 116 uh, residential rental units, uh, and it, it's been going on a while, as, as you're aware, and uh, it's back on track, and we see a light at the end of the tunnel, and we expect to be done um, uh, prior to the end of the year. And the irony is the market is much better today for that type of property. It, it is without a question, and I think there's more and more taking place on Staten Island, so I think people are paying attention. Let's talk about Brooklyn. I mean, you've been always active in Brooklyn initially as a contractor and so on. So tell me about what you're doing in Brooklyn. But down in Brooklyn, we're doing a 45-story residential tower. Uh, it's uh, about 130 units. Uh, it's down at 111 Willoughby. Uh, we think the market there is also great. And It's a uh, residential with 421A tax abatements? Th- that is correct. We got in prior to the expiration of 421A. Okay. What else? You, any other projects in Brooklyn? No, I think that's it in Brooklyn. We uh, Staten Island, Brooklyn, and uh, no, that's it. So let, let's let's go to New Jersey. You've been involved with what we would call as the Brick Church project for many years. Yeah. So, so in in, in Brick Church, East Orange, uh, we acquired uh, about four years ago uh, uh, a large retail center there that was anchored by a shoprite. Uh, and uh, it's it, literally right at the Brick Church train station. Uh, and so our, we're under construction. The parking garage is being built. Uh, it's a 1,200-car parking garage. 
uh, it's required to be complete before we knock down the shop right that's there, build a new shop right, and on top of the shop right, we're uh, uh, building 400 rental units. Uh, Are they affordable or market rate? No, they're they're mixed. They're mixed. They're affordable and and, and market. Uh, it is literally at the Brick Church train station. We're contiguous to it, and that happens to be a 20-minute commute into Penn Station. Uh, and we you know, have a vision for the property and believe that it will be a very successful development. Let's talk about some topic which everybody's bullish on, the industrial market. Oh, great market. Uh, and it's cooled a, a bit, uh, but we are doing a, a 400,000-square-foot uh, logistics center uh, at the back entrance to JFK, right on the on the Bell Parkway. Uh, we are fully leased. Uh, we are probably a couple months away from TCVO. Uh, the tractor trailer. So you have no, you have zero vacancy in the building. Zero vacancy in the building, and you're not even completed with it. We're not even completed. Now the interesting thing about this project, it's uh, it's more than one level. It's multi level. It's multi level. That the the tractor trailers come up to the second floor, uh, and uh, yeah, we we've been uh, actually the half of the second floor became a battle uh, for the space and. We are 100% leased there, and uh, you know, looking forward to uh, starting to see it occupied, uh, you know, around uh, May 1st. Queens, I know, Far Rockaway. Let's talk about what you're doing out there. Well, Far Rockaway, we're involved in a in a, in a tri venture with with L and M and Bluestone. We're doing 1,600 units of housing. Uh, it's uh, you know, kind of mid to small box, uh, mom and pop uh, type of retail, uh, Main Street, so to speak. Uh, and uh, how many residential units? Sixteen hundred residential, mostly affordable. So they're affordable. What it, uh, AMI is one hundred and five thousand. So it, it does it range from forty percent for low income to one hundred and seventy five percent of area median income? Yes. Okay. Now another area that you've been involved with is the. Uh, I'm not sure it's fifty five, but it's the suburban residential housing. Let's talk that- about that. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, out in on Long Island, we have uh, a uh, eighty-unit uh, uh, townhouse, uh, fifty-five and over. Uh, it's in Woodbury. Um, we are now about uh, their condos, and we're about ninety uh, percent sold. Uh, and the price range is um, is it's all market. And the, uh, there is some uh, you know uh, there is some affordable, but mostly market and. Uh, I think the starting point is about $1.2 million. You know, with interest rates rising, how difficult has it been for you to get financing for some of these developments that we're talking about? You know, it, it, it hasn't been difficult. It's been costly. You know, uh, for example, we were, we were you know, pushing to, to, to close the financing on Brick Church. And every time the feds uh, moved uh, 0.75, we lost $7 million of proceeds on uh, on our borrowing, so it, it, you know the money was there. It was just expensive, and it continues to be there. Uh, but you know, in, in the city right now, without 421A, with interest rates where they are, and the cost of construction, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to put a deal together. So, in, in essence, you, I, I, I say you are very bullish on New York City. You've always been bullish on New York City. Yeah, I, I, I look. New York City is is New York City. It, it doesn't come without its complications. It's more difficult than other places that uh, that we develop. Um, but you know, it's uh, you know, there's it's, only it's, one Big Apple. It's not going anywhere, Michael. It's not going anywhere. I'd like to thank Lester Petrakler of Triangle Equities for being here today. Thank you for having me, Michael. Appreciate it.
Uh, this is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. up in the sky and we never know what we're going to see and uh, uh, Steve uh, keeps us informed and he has some breaking news today. Uh, Steve Cates, give us the breaking news. Well, John, this is very interesting. We've had this massive solar CME, which is called a halo CME, and this is quite quite interesting. Back on March the 13th, a gigantic explosion happened on the far side of the sun. Well, what's so unusual about that? Well, we see these flares and CMEs all the time as we move into sunspot cycle 25. But what's interesting, John, is a lot of people have never experienced, meaning the scientists, a rare halo CME. What is that? It means on the far side of the sun, a gigantic blast of energy came out in all directions, which is quite unusual. And lucky for us, it wasn't headed directly toward the Earth. But believe it or not, John, this explosion or expansion of this giant cloud of material actually slightly affected the Earth, even though it wasn't directed at us. goes to show you, right, John, the power of the sun. It is tremendous power, and I understand we got lucky it missed us. How much did it miss us by? Uh, otherwise, we would could have had a problem. John, about 80 or 90 percent of it missed us. That's the good news, but here's not the good news. That sunspot group that allegedly caused this particular event is now moving itself around the front side of the sun, not to alarm people, But as we move into solar cycle 25 even deeper, meaning more activity, well, the best, in quotes, if you like these type of things, is yet to come. So stay tuned, kind of sit down and, well, put on your uh, special anti-solar radiation hat because this is what nature does. The sun is 4 billion years old. Uh, Something must have happened with the dinosaurs and uh, something like that, but... But I'm not worrying about it because I think uh, over the next couple hundred years, I think we're still okay. I think we are, John. The solar cycle continues to show us power, but it hasn't, thank God, destroyed the Earth. But there's something really interesting, John. We always talk about the mystery of the week, and here we go again, something from physics. What are neutrinos? Well, these are called ghost particles in the science world. They're the most abundant subatomic particles in nature. They have no electric charge, and they have a mass near zero. And billions of these particles, John, are streaming through our bodies every day. And where are they thought to come from? Back to the sun. They're thought to come from nuclear fusion in stars and supernova. And now, it's amazing, scientists have detected these mystery particles in these giant machines called particle colliders. that smashes particles together, and they've actually found neutrinos. But it all goes back to another thing. Another particle that was detected in the past is the so-called God particle. The mystery one. It's called the Higgs boson. What's that? It's a particle in nature that actually adds mass to other particles. But both, John, the neutrinos and the God particle, the Higgs boson, has something to do with gravity. So we're still, still so far away from understanding what they call the theory of everything. That is combining what we know in physics to this quantum physics. Don't forget, John, people can still look and see things in the sky as we wrap it up here. If they look into the west after sunset in these beautiful early spring nights, you get to see Venus and you get to see the planet Jupiter and the moon growing in brilliance. And basically five planets, John, are visible in the evening sky, but many have to do with the telescope. So you'll be able to see Venus and Jupiter, Mercury a little faint, the planet Uranus, of course, you'd need a telescope, and Mars right overhead, John, at sunset. 
about 130 million miles away. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? I just amazing love it. stuff. It makes my mind uh, expand. And I know I did uh, send you some information about the possibility of being able to cut across the universe in seconds with some space holes. Uh, Absolutely. And, 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 and uh, in theory, uh, warp speed might be available. And yes. uh, God bless uh, God and God bless America. And uh, I hope they're watching over us, uh, Steve. I do, too, John. That's called quantum entanglement. We'll talk about that later. Check us out. As you know, John, WABCRadio.com, the Dr. Sky Experience for both podcast and, of course, our blog. Thank you, John, and a good morning to you and all the listeners. Thank you so much, and uh, make sure everybody listens to your podcast on WABCRadio.com, uh, the podcasts, and uh, uh, it's uh, really mind-boggling. Thank you so much, and have a great weekend. You bet, John. Thank you, too. It's Sunday morning. With us today is former Congressman Peter King. And uh, so many things are happening in our city, our state, our country. Uh, what are we going to talk about, Congressman King? I'd say, John, the one issue which seems to linger, it was supposed to be resolved this week. You know, people thought it was going to be, and now it's off until sometime uh, you know, later next week, or the upcoming week. And that's the whole issue of the uh, in- indictments of President Trump by the uh, Manhattan County uh, Grand Jury, New York County Grand Jury, by the uh, district attorney, Alvin Bragg. And uh, first of all, I think this is such an abuse of power. I mean, the job of a prosecutor is to find a crime that's been committed and then find the person who did it. In this case, they identified Donald Trump as being the person who did it before they knew what he did. And they're trying to find something that adds up to a crime. They haven't been able to do it. They seem to be they thought they were on the verge of an indictment. And then the uh, Trump Trump's attorneys sent in uh, a lawyer who had been a lawyer for Michael Cohen, who was supposed to be the key witness against uh, Donald Trump. And he exposed the fact that Cohen has been lying for years and that his story against Donald Trump just does not add up at all. And so rather than announce the indictment the next day, the district attorney has now put it off into the upcoming week. Uh, This is so wrong. First of all, to indict a former president of the United States is exceptional. To do it under false, contrived charges. Congressman King, if you go after an ex-president, it better be for a big crime like treason, not uh, uh, your lawyer paying off uh, a uh, a prostitute or a hooker. I mean, enough is enough. It's just wrong. We can't be turning politics into a situation where law enforcement is being used as a political weapon. That's what's happening here. That's what goes on in banana republics and third world countries, not in the United States of America. Yes, the threat went out from the Republican Congress that we're going to go after your guys. Uh, and But I think the facts uh, uh, halted of what was going on in New York. It wasn't the threats. They don't think, I don't think any DA cares about the threats. No, that's that, you're right. There's nothing to do with the threats. Also, this, you know, the fact that the Republicans are talking about uh, sending a referral that uh, the Biden family should be investigated or there should be charges. Well, that's based on real facts. But in the end, it's the Justice Department that has to do it anyway. But it's one thing to see all this evidence out there, which certainly looks incriminating against people in the Biden family, whether it is or not, remains to be seen. But there's certainly enough smoke there to believe there could be a fire. In Donald Trump's case, there's nothing. There's not even like a used matchstick. There's nothing. 
and yet they're trying to uh, make that a basis for an indictment. And having said that, you know, you can indict almost anyone if you want to. And that's a terrible abuse of power, though, when any district attorney does that. He has the power to do it, but it's morally wrong and it's legally wrong in the end. But you can ruin somebody. Listen, luckily, Donald Trump is wealthy and he's a strong guy. If you're an average business person uh, who uh, somehow the district attorney decides to go after you because they don't like your politics, they can bankrupt you. You can end up in the, in the end, you win. You have no money left. You have no business left. And your reputation is ruined. Congressman Peter King, thank you so much for bringing everybody up to date. We look forward to we pray for America and uh, we, we hope things uh, work themselves out and we'll catch up again real soon. Thank you, John. With us today is uh, former Governor David Patterson, one common sense guy, one smart guy. Uh, David Patterson, Sunday morning, I'm drinking my my black coffee uh, and, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on in our city, our state, uh, the, the, the country. Give us some. Where do you want to start? Well, let's sweeten up that coffee a little bit, John, and talk about... No, no I don't use sugar. No sugar. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about the former Vice President Mike Pence. He was in the studio Thursday, and he was part of a discussion along with Senator D'Amato and uh, obviously Chairman Ed Cox and uh, Judge Weinberg, the movie star, and uh, Rita Cosby, yourself, and, and me. And at a certain point when he left... There was a commercial break, and during the commercial break, I'm sure you remember, the Senator Al D'Amato said, if you really think about it, Mike Pence saved this country a whole lot of grief and, and just, uh, uh, you know, just anger between the parties and, and, the, and the citizens that live in this country, because he was the presiding officer who validates the election results from the states, and just as Al Gore was in a very, very close election. It came down to one state in 2000. Pence, uh, as the presiding officer, ratified that that's what those um, states had sent to him. President Trump and a number of people wanted him to use the powers of the presiding officer to reject what these states had sent, and he doesn't have any powers. Now, he could have said it, but all that would have happened is that the uh, uh, majority leader of the Senate would have then just brought the uh, statistics out in individually, and it still would have certified that Joe Biden was the winner. But I think the fact that there was that much pressure on him, and he did what he thought was right, and I think uh, legally people on both sides of the equation knew it was right and took a lot of heat for it and, and you know, got the uh, Trump beat. He's never really capital on it, never really tried to be the hero or anything like that. Uh, he just did what he thought was right. In other words, he did his job and he moved on. Uh, understood. And, you know, just to make it all straight, uh, I think there's a lot of things about January 6th that we don't know what the truth really is. But I agree with you that Vice President Pence did do the right uh, uh, decision on uh, on the powers of the, of the vice president. And uh, uh, I think uh, President Trump was uh, uh, was getting very emotional that he thought that the the country 
uh, was uh, going in the wrong direction and that uh, things happened that shouldn't have happened. And uh, Vice President Pence, I believe, made the right decision. And uh, you're correct. Now, go ahead. I think everybody thinks that way. And uh, as we have found, a lot of what went on on January 6th has been investigated now, actually two years afterward. It's still going on. But we also have to respect that people did things in the moment. Uh, You know, uh, and, and I think that's where on both sides of the aisle we've lost our way a little bit. People have to make decisions. And those decisions will affect things happening years to come. Some decisions that were made at a particular time, given the passage of time, may not have been as accurate as they were believed to be when they were made. But I think we have to give our leaders, governors, presidents, uh, even corporation leaders, a break in the sense that at the time, they're making a decision based on data and evidence and belief that this was the best thing to do. And I think in the case of uh, former Vice President Pence, I don't think there's anybody that really is still critical of the actions he took on that day. Me and you went to a movie for an opening of a new uh, movie on Thursday. Was it Wednesday night or Thursday night? Uh, And the name of the movie was Gotham. And it tells about New York City, New York State, when we were almost in the worst toilet than we are now. Tell our audience about it. It's called Gotham, and it's available on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime. And tell yes. the audience about it in a minute or less uh, what it covers. Well, it really demonstrated the value of the Broken Windows program, where you start arresting people for the minor crimes, then when you look at their history, you find out that they've committed some major crimes. So it's actually a way to get them off the streets. Uh, Another thing was transferring more cops from the subways to the platform because most of the subway crimes are committed on the platform. Um, Using technology for the first time, this is what Mayor Giuliani did, use technology for the first time to have a database to uh, reduce crime. And every time these measures have been tried, They have uh, reduced crime, although I thought it was kind of funny. They made all this fun of Mayor Dinkins because 2,200 people died from gunfire in 1990 and never mentioned that the uh, number of people that died for gunfire over the last five years of Mayor Koch was between 1,500 and 2,000. So I guess he had a friend who was editing the movie. Uh, agreed, and I enjoyed that movie. And uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, as a Republican and P- Peter Vallone as a Democrat, uh, he was the Speaker of the House, brought it together, and we saved New York. And, Governor, I'm going to work with you. We have to work together to save New York this time around because we're going in the wrong direction. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, John. Have a great Sunday. Thank you. Andrew Cuomo talks about the state of the city, the state of the state, and a nation in crisis. Now, here's Andrew Cuomo on well, 77 back. WABC. And uh, well, we must have hundreds of listeners trying to get through. Uh, and uh, uh, 
Governor, where, which way do you want to go? Which call do you want to take now? We have Bob uh, from Schenectady, and I have been uh, told, John, I have to keep the answer shorter. So I will do it. Short and sweet. Bob, how are you? Uh, great, Governor. Thanks for taking my call. I, I'll be quick, too. I, You know, we're reading about these different investigations into President Trump, and it seems like a lot of them are going very methodically. And then the, the Bragg investigation, which seems like it's coming to fruition, seems like it, it came out of nowhere. I don't understand. Can can you give some context as a former prosecutor? What is he up to? What is what is he going for here? Yeah. Uh, well, Bob, thank you for the question. Uh, I was an assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office. I was attorney general of the state of New York. Uh, first, uh, Donald Trump doesn't help himself when he says uh, death and destruction. If you indict me, I have a baseball bat. I'm going to come, you know, uh, we're our own worst enemy in life. You know why he did any of that? I have no idea. Um, but the uh, indictment was supposed to come this week. It didn't come. Uh, I believe it comes next week. The expression for a prosecutor is you can indict a ham sandwich because the prosecutor controls the entire indictment process. So I'm sure they'll get an indictment. Uh, I don't understand uh, why Bragg is putting such emphasis on this case. Uh, a person breaks the law. I get it. But on the state side, this is a misdemeanor case. It's really a federal case because he needs it to be a campaign finance fraud case, which is a federal case. Uh, and, and that's what Bragg is going to have to do to get a felony out of this. Uh, and also, general caution, you have a cynical public. They don't believe anyone and when you start to see these prosecutors bringing political cases, it just affirms everybody's cynicism. I don't believe any of this. I don't believe uh, a Democratic prosecutor just happens to be attacking a Republican. I don't believe a Republican prosecutor just happens to be attacking a Democrat. I think it's all politics. And I think that's what the people of this country are saying. And it just feeds that anger and that cynicism and the partisanship. It's a coincidence that Bragg goes after Trump and Tish James goes after Trump and Georgia goes after Trump. That's all a coincidence. Uh, and I think it feeds the cynicism. And that's the cancer in our body politic right now. Thank you, Bob. You know, I believe that, that the American people have to feel the old-fashioned way to me, the way me and you grew up, uh, Governor, is that all, uh, you know, all, all justice has to be equal for all people. And justice, you know, people, people have to be blind, whether you're, you're uh, black, white, or Chinese, or whatever. It's got to be equal justice for all. Yeah, and John, prosecutors are politicians. Let's be honest. They want headlines. They want donations. Uh, they're looking about re-election. They're looking about election to the next office. And when they start to play politics with prosecutions, that's scary. It hurts. It hurts our country. Yes. Amen. And what is today is the American Greek uh, that was uh, uh, that is ambassador uh, from the United States to Greece. We have Ambassador George Tsunis. Ambassador, tell us uh, uh, you're an American. Uh, you uh, are proud uh, of proud Greek heritage. Uh, give us your feelings about you getting, a, 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 you know, appointed to the, uh, your country of your forefathers and being the American ambassador in Greece. Well, it's always an honor to serve one's country. 
uh, it's especially uh, an honor uh, to serve as a U.S. ambassador in Greece um, as we commemorate uh, Greece's independence, you know, I'm reminded of the democratic values that were born in Greece that has not only united uh, our peoples uh, and an extraordinary history that bonds the United States uh, uh, and Greece. We have both uh, at, at our foundings of our countries and, and, our, and our governments are steeped in democratic values uh uh, that originated in Greece. And I'm very um, proud to be the American ambassador um, because those are the values uh, that I hope my country puts forth. Well, democracy began in Greece. Uh, uh, the United States of America is the uh, d- a democratic country. And uh, it's a good thing putting it both together, aren't they? Yeah, for more than two centuries our, our, our nations, our peoples have stood together to protect democratic values. And I'm proud to say that today the U.S.-Greek relationship is greater than ever and growing stronger uh, every day. And, you know, John, that has a lot to do with the fantastic Greek diaspora that you're at the, uh, the very, very uh, head of. And um, as a Greek-American, I, I just want to say how proud I am to be your friend and how thankful I am for everything you do, for not only uh, your community in New York, but for U.S.-Greek bilateral relationship. Agreed. Now, uh, we have a big parade uh, in uh, New York on April 30th, and we hope that uh, if you're in in New York that day, uh, that you will participate and be the uh, honorary uh, Grand Marshal. Oh, it would be a great honor uh, for me, uh, John, and uh, an even great honor to march with you, my friend. With us today on Greek Independence Day, we have His Eminence Archbishop Peter Flotos, uh, who is the Archbishop of Americas and uh, represents uh, at least 7, 10 million um, uh, Greeks with Greek background and Orthodox background in America. Uh, Your Eminence, uh, how are you today? Uh, good morning, John. Thanks for calling me and giving me this opportunity to address uh, all uh, New Yorkers and all Americans today. In these days when we celebrate uh, the, uh, the beginning of the uh, uh, war for independence, for the Greeks to be free from uh, Ottoman rule, we Greeks uh, share the same values like the United States of America And these values inspired the uh, American independence and the the struggle for the American independence inspired after this the Greek revolution. So the two revolutions, the two nations are so close connected to each other that this adds meaning and uh, uh, this adds value to the celebrations that we have these days. And we are so grateful that Uh, The city of New York, and not only the city, the state of New York, the great state of New York, but also the White House, uh, they uh, pay so much attention to the Greek Independence Day and the celebrations, offering, like you know, that a few days ago we were in Albany, where uh, I had the opportunity to uh, take, to be part of the celebration for the Greek Independence Day, both in the Assembly House, where we, it was dedicated a special session to us, and in the Senate session. The Senate honored the Greek Independence Day 
and so did the House of the Representatives of the State of New York. And now we are preparing ourselves to go to White House, where the president will receive all the Greeks, the Greek Americans, to uh, do this uh, again, because this is a tradition. Every year we are doing this. And the president of the United States will honor the Greek Revolution and the Greek Independence Day, because exactly like you said, and like all the historians that you referred before said and recognized, these two civilizations, the Greek civilization and the American civilization, they have the same values, they share the same values based on democracy, freedom, and human rights. So we are proud Greeks, we are proud Greek Americans, and we are proud Americans. Your Eminence, thank you, uh, and uh, let's pray for world peace, and and uh, God bless America, God bless... Uh, God bless America, John, and I invite everyone, not only the Greeks, but all, all Americans to join us to the parade at the end of April in the Fifth Avenue, not because uh, you are Greeks, not because you are Greek Americans, but you are Americans. We march for freedom. We march for democracy. We march for America. God bless America, John. God bless. Thank you, Your Eminence. The parade will be April 30th on a Sunday up Fifth Avenue, and and, uh, we will celebrate all together. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. We continue with Common Sense Conversation on the Cats Roundtable, where we listen to all sides. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. With us today is Senator Mike Gennaris. He is represents the 12th state Senate district, and uh, he's in Queens, and he is the deputy majority leader. Uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, welcome to the the show, and uh, and uh, it's springtime, and I, I hope uh, we never had a winter, a, a winter. I know. Well, this is the problem with uh, with climate change that we've been talking about for so long, but. I guess we'll enjoy the nice weather while we have it. Absolutely, and uh, you're you are of a Greek background, and uh, and uh, this weekend was Greek Independence Day. Uh, you have any particular feelings uh, about that? And uh, and uh, tell us about it. You represent a lot of Greeks in uh, in Queens. I do, and uh, even more so when I was first elected. You know this very well, John, because we've known each other uh, this long. But when I was elected way back in uh, the year 2000 to the state assembly, I, I went to your one. wedding. You exactly. You were, and you were the first. Uh, you knew that I was the first uh, Greek American to get elected to office from New York City to any office. So it was a long time coming for our community. Since then, we've had a lot of others who have followed me. So now we have uh, an actual. Greek caucus uh, in in Albany, and we hosted the Archbishop uh, this past week, and uh, it was a really lovely time, and everyone enjoyed themselves. And, uh, the Archbishop, as eminence, gave the invocation for both the Senate and the Assembly. He met with the governor and the legislative leaders. I think it was a very productive day for him, and uh, certainly an honor for us to have him. And, and it was. He's a very uh, religious man, and uh, sometimes we have to pray a lot to make sure uh, 
the world continues the way we love it to continue. Uh, tell us uh, what else you would like to, to fill us in. You, the majority uh, leader of the state Senate, there's been a lot of fights going on between the state Senate and the uh, uh, and the governor's office. Uh, and, and the budget is due, uh, I guess, April 1st. Is that April Fool's Day? <laughs> I hope not in this case, but but uh, look, there's a lot of uh, uh, agreements we have with the governor, and the, the ones that we disagree about are the ones that get all the attention. Um, but I do want to say that we we are on the same page in a lot of things, and so that's uh, important to note as we work together to, to finalize the budget. Uh, there's a couple of big items for me that are priorities uh, in the next uh, week to try and get done, and. Uh, near the top of that list is uh, helping the MTA get uh, the support it needs. It has suffered a very dramatic decline in ridership uh, during the, during and since the pandemic, and they're struggling to get the numbers back to uh, where they don't have a giant hole in their budget like they do now. Uh, but they need to be rescued um, uh, this year, and we, uh, all three parties, the Assembly, Senate, and the Governor, fortunately, agree on this, and we've all put similar amounts of money in excess of a billion dollars to helping them. We disagree about where the money comes from, and that's kind of where we have to uh, hash out our differences on that issue. But if we can get that money to the MTA, hopefully increase ridership again, uh, because it's not just uh, increasing ridership to get them uh, their budget money, which is certainly a big part of it, but it also uh, contributes to the safety of the system. I think part of why people might feel fearful when they're on a subway platform or waiting for a bus late at night is if they're standing there alone. Um, and when things are more crowded and there's more people using the system, that also uh, contributes to actual safety as well as the perception of safety, uh, which then in turn will increase ridership yet again, and that, that keeps the system going. Well, a lot of people, uh, as you know, I've been yelling and screaming about safety in our streets because uh, people want to feel safe. I mean, I can take care of myself. I carry a baseball bat. I mean, I joke about that, but... Uh, a lot of people worry. And uh, are, are you coming to a, a better agreement with the uh, governor's office on people having the perception of feeling safe? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked the question that way, too, because, you know, the the debate around this issue has really gone sideways. And everyone's so focused on certain elements of it, like bail, which we've, we've been saying for years, Look, if there's data that shows things need to, can improve, we'll improve it. We've already done it twice as it relates to the bail laws. But, but by focusing so heavily on something that most experts agree is not the main cause of the problem, we are not putting our focus and attention on the things that actually are. Um, and there was a, just a report from John Jay College this week that said the bail laws have actually uh, reduced recidivism on low-level crimes. Um, and so they've been as successful as we hoped they would be when we enacted them uh, four or five years ago. Um, where we need to focus is on uh, the problems that have contributed to a rise in crime throughout the country. This is not just a New York-specific uh, phenomenon. Uh, and that means tackling gun crime as best we can, uh, dealing with the mental health problem that uh, is at the root of a lot of the crime that occurs, uh, and if we can put our energies into those things, uh, I think we'd make a much bigger dent on crime than continuing this debate about the bail laws that, uh, like I said, most experts don't think is really the source of the problem. I don't care if somebody steals a, a steals a, a loaf of bread. We don't care. I mean, it, uh, you know, if he's hungry and steals a loaf of bread, it's it's the violent criminals that everybody's concerned about that comp uh, they have repeat violent crimes. Don't you think that's the, the main objective? 
A hundred percent. And look, some, sometimes, look, I, I'm not in favor of someone shoplifting week after week either, right? Like, even though that's a nonviolent crime. Uh, but my point is simply that the laws already provide, as it relates to bail anyway, that those are bail eligible, just like they always were, just like they were uh, in the heyday of public safety in the early 2000s, right? This is not something that the bailers have affected. Uh, recidivists, whether it's a nonviolent or a violent crime, are bail eligible, uh, but you're absolutely right. People that are repeat violent offenders need to be dealt with. We all agree on that. And we just have to figure out how best to do it to keep our streets safe. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Deputy Majority Leader of the State Senate, uh, Mike Giannaris. And uh, God bless you and happy uh, uh, Independence Day for your Greek heritage. And we'll catch up again real soon. Thank you. We'll see you at the parade, John. Thank you. April 30th. See you there. With us today is Zach Williams, and he is the star reporter reporting all this, all all the news that's fit to print in Albany for the New York Post, and he reports at it Monday through Friday, and he's on with us almost every Sunday. Uh, Zach Williams, uh, it's only a week to go for the budget. Is there going to be a budget? <laughs> well, there will be a budget, but it's just a matter of when. Now, we're entering that final stretch, as you said, to the April 1st state budget deadline and the battle lines were really uh drawn this week you know the governor held a press conference on wednesday to highlight her push to overhaul bail reform right after progressive lawmakers themselves rallied at the capitol with latrice walker an assemblywoman from brooklyn is a very prominent supporter of bail reform saying quote the gloves are off so it's just a matter now with uh, just a week again, again to that April 1st budget deadline, which side might give in. But more and more, it looks like we're going to have a late budget, and uh, we might not have one for weeks to go. Uh, understood. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of people are very emotional, uh, especially uh, when it comes to crime in our city, in our state, and uh, uh, taxes and and the amount of taxes keep going up, and the amount of uh, New Yorkers that are leaving New York, keep they keep leaving. And now I understand that uh, uh, they're going to go after businesses in, uh, in New York besides. Uh, uh, people don't know if they should zig or zag. <laughs> well, let's break it down a little bit here. So, you know, all you know, the context of this is what some might call an almost uh, generational standoff between the legislature, which has Democratic supermajorities, very heavy with progressive lawmakers and the governor, also a Democrat, but relative centrist, if you will. Now, the governor is, has a couple fights going on. Yes, she's got to fight the progressives who want to raise the minimum wage higher than she does. She just wants to peg it to inflation. They want to boost it up to about 20 bucks and Take it to inflation. Of course, they oppose her on bail reform, expanding charter schools. But some of the biggest fight that Hochul has is with suburban lawmakers from both parties, really. You know, she has this proposal to raise the payroll tax on businesses. That's really opposed by a lot of suburban lawmakers, especially Democrats. Remember, you know, a little over 10 years ago, where a similar move cost them some seats in the following election. Then there's her housing plan. You know, the governor is highlighting an effort to make 800,000 more units over the next decade. But the problem is, is how she's going about it. There's two parts. One of them would basically require higher densities within a half mile of any transit station, you know, LIRR, Metro North, that type of thing. And, 
you know, basically would, uh, you know, would, would nullify the zoning rules that would keep that from happening. And then another push that the governor is doing is to impose a 3% growth target downstate, 1% upstate, which means that they would have to increase each locality, town, village, city, would have to increase its housing units by 3% each year. Now, the governor, for starters, leaves it to the localities to figure out how to do that. But if they do not, and a lot of them don't want to, then she would have the state come in and basically give developers the permits and whatnot that they need to get the housing units built. You know, suburban uh, lawmakers and other elected officials are basically saying that this would be the end of the suburbs, at least places like Scarsdale or Winter Bay, and they do not want to do it. They maybe would take the housing targets, but they do not want the, you know, kind of the stick with the carrot and state lawmakers, the Democratic uh, supermajorities, have basically sided with the suburbs on this and said, you know what, we're going to go all in with the carrot, throw more money at you to help you, you know, develop your sewer systems, that type of stuff, but we're not going to include that little bit I just mentioned about letting developers build anyways over local zoning rules. So there's a lot to handle there, but long story short, the governor has a couple fights on her hands, but, you know, it all gets back to the legislature and the governor, you know, who's going to emerge as kind of the top person here. Zach Williams, uh, keep fighting because we have to save uh, New York. I love New York. And uh, God bless you and God bless America. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me, John. We'll talk again soon. With us today is Dick Morris, uh, a strategist for uh, President Donald Trump, a, uh, a strategist for President Bill Clinton, and uh, his ears are always close to the ground, so he uh, he gives us pretty good stories. Uh, what is going on in Washington this weekend? Well, it's not in Washington, Canada, it's in New York, where uh, D.A. Alvin Bragg is uh, keeping the world waiting in suspense on whether or not he's going to indict Donald Trump. And um, he never learns, and the prosecutors never learn that the more they go after Trump, the more they help him, not hurt him, help him. And if they ultimately indict him and arrest him, he'll move up 10 points in the polling. In February, he was 18 points ahead of DeSantis. Now he's 30 points. The only thing you can do is the Bragg indictment issue and the whole discussion of it. Um, when they come after Trump, the base, the Republican supporters of Trump, and the independents say, hey, wow, the deep state is coming after him. So this, so he's the real deal. Uh, we know that he's doing well because we know that they hate him and they're trying to lock him up. And, you know, if these, quote, crimes that they're investigating involve moral turpitude or financial corruption, that would hurt him. The crimes, such as they are, stuff that nobody gives a damn. Who cares if he paid off Stormy Daniels? And who cares if he put the receipt in the box that said campaign donations? And who cares whether he returned the stuff to the archives on time or whether he forgot about it and didn't tell the archivist all about it and they found additional documents? Who gives a damn? And they seem to have lost complete sight of the fact that the only reason that their indictments and their prosecutions have any power is because of the 
of the moral problems they imply and the, the bad conduct that they register. Uh, the fact of being indicted or the fact of being arrested doesn't mean anything. And um, I think that if they do indict or arrest Trump, it'll be the best thing that ever happened to them. And they need to understand that. Trump, on the other hand, needs to understand that the dominant negative that people have about him is they're worried that I'm quoting them in the polling. He's a threat to democracy. And when he says he won the election when they think he lost, and he says there'll be riots and horrible bloodshed if I'm indicted, that stokes people's fears that he's really going to lead a, lead a revolution or lead a coup d'etat. And that he makes he Jeffrey. makes a lot of mistakes. Dick Morris, we both know him for a long time. He makes a lot of mistakes, uh, mistakes by by uh, by yeah. uh, the people having bad reactions over him. Yeah, but people understand it's Donald Trump, and given the uh, given the severity of the provocation of an arrest on these grounds, I think people will cut him slack. Uh, it'll depend on what he does at his rally tomorrow in Waco, Texas. Uh, because if he uh, plays on with talking about violence and riots and everything, then I think he'll hurt himself. But I think ultimately he'll be uh, understanding of his political needs, and he won't give vent to his emotional anger or rages. Well, I understand, and we'll know uh, today's Sunday. You're going to be on at noontime today on WABCradio.com, 770 on your dial. And on your iPhone, at 77 WABC, what are you going to talk about today at noontime? Well, I'm going to talk about this whole affair, and I'm going to talk about how Trump handled it in the speech in Waco yesterday, and we'll talk all about uh, how this is playing out politically. Well, Dick Morris, I look forward to talking together, and uh, I guess we'll know better on Monday or Tuesday, and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Bye-bye, Kat. Thank you for listening to the Metropolitan Edition of the Cats Roundtable. If you missed any interviews, go to thecatsroundtable.com or go to wabcradio.com. Go to the podcast, get those segments that you missed, and stay tuned for the National Edition in a few minutes after the news.